I've been silent on this subject for too long, but I can remain silent no more. I want to talk about turn-based JRPGs. Of course, on this podcast, I've talked a lot about Kingdom Hearts, which is a, a type of JRPG, but it doesn't have um, that same flavor as the turn-based RPGs. It has still has a menuing system, you know, it still has the uh, spiky hair, it still has the attempts to kill God, but it is, uh, you know, because of its action elements, it is slightly different than the type of game that I want to talk about. And not only do I want to talk about turn-based JRPGs, but I also want to talk about turn-based JRPGs that feature elements of urban fantasy, which is a genre I love and is, for some reason, at, at least by my reckoning, very unexplored in Western media or uh, for whatever examples of it there are in Western media. I, I think there there could be a lot more. It seems like Japan has a leg up on depictions of urban fantasy. Um, so uh, let's start off by, one, I want to talk about turn-based JRPGs, and then second, I want to define urban fantasy before I get into three games that I really love and think define this genre and really get their hooks into me. But uh, first, I want to talk about turn-based uh, RPGs. Why do I like turn-based RPGs? Why do I like especially, like, fairly grindy turn-based RPGs? Uh, what is it about them uh, that I enjoy? Because I see lots of video game people out there, people that otherwise love any type of video game, and they're like, I just don't get RPGs. I'm not into them. I don't... Especially the ones where there's no action element, where I'm not in control of, like, a character. I'm not controlling their movement, really. Uh, there's a system where the immersion is broken by the fact that I have to go through a menu. I remember even my dad, I was playing RPGs as a youth, and my dad said, with the, he didn't understand. It's like, don't you want to just go up to the monsters and actually hit them? Like, what's the point of having a menu as your middleman? That's not how, like, fights actually work, right? Doesn't it break the immersion? But um, I think uh, the issue with this is, yeah, sure, it's immersion breaking, but you're already playing a video game. I think, you know, the need to constantly be one-to-one -one with reality is is already a, a weird expectation of video games, something that's in, inherently unreal. Why are we always moving towards the idea that these need to be as realistic as possible or need to bear a verisimilitude? Uh, because I, I think often it plays out you know you can see how well the wind waker ages compared to twilight princess stuff that doesn't necessarily try to go for realism at its time ends up aging better because uh you know it's just something more dynamic you can do with the art style and the medium when you go for realism games tend to you know tack with a generic art style you know the the uncharted games while beautiful looking you know, they, they aren't as distinctive looking from something like, say, The Last of Us than The Wind Waker is from Twilight Princess. You know, Wind Waker, I can, like, clearly picture color palettes and designs in my head where when you go for that sense of realism, uh, you know, sometimes the games become less iconic because uh, much in the same way that digital film sort of overtook the the naturalistic circly beauty of of analog film you know there's something less iconic about 
attempting to go for that realism and all the time so that's what i want to say initially if your criticism of it is like uh turn-based battle systems are they're unrealistic yeah sure but you know who cares it's a fucking video game it's not you're not it's not real life you can be whatever you want it to be um but if you if you just don't like it because you find it boring, that's the best criticism. It's like, I want to be in a video game because I want to be controlling the movement of my character at all times. That helps me. That's a perfectly fine criticism. And if you don't like the feel uh, of it because of that, I, I fully understand. But what I would say about turn-based battle systems that I really enjoy is they're like little puzzles that you have to work out. You just, every step of the way, you just get into a little puzzle. Almost like a, if you think of turn-based RPGs as less um, of sort of action-y based games and more of like a Professor Layton type game where you just go around and then there's a little puzzle around every corner and then you get a little reward for solving the puzzle. And with turn-based RPGs, you're given enemies to defeat. You have a set amount of tools and you have to figure out how to defeat them with that set amount of tools. Um, the the function of super bosses in RPGs is that they severely limit the amount of tools that you have, or they they really test the extent of uh, your mana or health pool in order to be challenging. Usually, with the easier puzzles, there are a trillion ways to get rid of the enemies. But as the game ramps up in difficulty, the puzzles become more fiendish. The enemies have more resistances. Uh, you know, they have better stats, so it, there becomes less ways to dispose of them, and part of the fun of figuring it out is the logistical fun of figuring out what are the tools at my disposal, what I can get and uh, in order to solve this endless series of little mini-puzzles that you have. So to me, that is the fun of a turn-based RPG. Additionally, if you're not so good at, like, Twitch reflex gaming... If you're not, like, a hardcore gamer who's, like, very good at getting precise inputs and very good at doing, like, frame-perfect stuff, which I am not doing. You know, I'm very slow at it. I don't practice at it. I'm casual. I'm a filthy casual. Turn-based RPGs can be good for that, whereas, you know, uh, uh, other types of games can be frustrating. You know, I it's I say I'm, not, I'm like, I can beat the Dark Souls games, which are notoriously hard, but I think that's another thing, just as an aside— I don't think the Dark Souls games are hard. It's not that they're hard. It's just you die a lot, which is something that people say frequently. But it's like you just adjust your sensibility of what dying means in a video game. Because in like a regular video game, dying means, you know, oh, it's really bad. Especially like in the old days when you didn't have, you know, saves. uh, You only had password systems. Like dying, you had to start the whole game over again. But because... Uh, dying in Dark Souls is just a natural part of the game. You just get used to it over the course of the time. And uh, the game ends up being about repetition. And, and like, the, the games, yeah, they, they, they're they not... Some bosses are hard, but uh, going through the main line of each Dark Souls game, they're not as hard as people would say they are. You just adjust your expectations from other previous games you've played if you've never played a soul like, Souls-like before. Um... So, yeah, I'm, I I can do the Dark Souls games, and they're compelling. Um, but Dark Souls, you know, they also offer opportunities if they're too hard as well. Like, you can just you can just over-level yourself, which is also the beauty of an RPG. If, you know, if shit's getting too hard, just grind a little. Just grind a little, you know, just put in the effort, um, which some people find uh, grating, and they hate it. That grinding is the thing that they absolutely hate the most, and they will curse any game that makes you grind, like... 
a lot of the early Dragon Quest games, but I, I don't know, I sort of like it, you know, you have, you have to solve X many puzzles before the puzzles become easier, you know, that's, that's a little, it's, it's nice to me, you know, I, I like that, and you get a little dopamine hit, you get a little reward each time you solve each little puzzle, you know, it's, it's a great experience for me, I really enjoy it, I really like it, so, so yeah, the fun becomes less about, um, a sort of I, I accomplished this using my hand-eye coordination and much more of like a logistical fun like I figured this out in my brain and then I executed on it effectively um, so that to me if you are turned off of turn-based RPGs uh, that is the uh, thing that I will recommend to you is that don't think of them as uh, action games necessarily but more as these sort of uh these sort of little brain these sort of little brain games that you figure out um i also wanted to you know give a definition of urban fantasy i can let's go on wikipedia maybe wikipedia will give a <laughs> a, a good definition of it or just on google on the masterclass website masterclass.com Genre of literature encompassing novels, novellas, and short stories in which fantastical characters and concepts are placed in a real-world urban setting. So yeah, that's that's a that's a good summary of it. Basically, magic powers, supernatural abilities, but you're in the city. You know, there there are dragons, but they're in a modern city, or you know. So there are lots of. Uh, uh, I think the most famous, absolutely, absolutely the most famous urban fantasy turn-based RPG. Uh, to come from Japan is Pokemon. Pokemon is uh, a game that acquaints us all with the type of urban fantasy where you have these animals with superpowers, but the main action of the game takes place in a city. And that's what I loved about Pokemon as a kid. To me, it was always like I would play these RPGs set in medieval settings, and yeah, they were pretty cool. I would play like the early Final Fantasy games or like something like Chrono Trigger, and you know, obviously, those are great games. But Pokemon. When you take on, especially when you're eight and you can really imprint on this stuff, you know, you, you really take on the avatar of your character. And he lives in a house just like your house. He lives in a modern setting just like you. You know, there there's a feeling like uh, even in Kanto, you're just going around an urban setting and you're meeting people on the street. And to me, that was always just infinitely more relatable and more compelling because it was like heightening the world that I was already living in or introducing a type of world that I was already familiar with, so it was much easier for me to get into the game and sympathize with the protagonist. Uh, similarly, Earthbound uh, is another great game which uh, has this feeling to it, where the these things that are sort of familiar to you, these everyday objects or these everyday people, the, the New Age retro hippie, uh, and parking meters, you know, you're, you're fighting them, you know, <laughs> you're fighting, you don't know, no, dire wolves, forget about dire wolves, you're fighting parking meters, you're, you're fighting things you know, and I sort of, yeah, to me, that that was, uh, if part, part of video games, part of your enjoyment of video games is uh, to be immersed within it, or to have the world seem relatable to you in some way, which lends to that immersion I think urban fantasy does this really well. And, you know, that's just, it, it just also gets its hooks in me because I imagine traveling around my own city and I imagine, uh, you know, having 
uh, you know, having some sort of like a heightened atmosphere to it. You know, there's there's magic. There's magic in this world. You know, there uh, you can conjure stuff. There are magical animals around you. You know, that that's the success of Pokemon Go. It creates the enhanced illusion of reality. You know, who cares about a total fantasy? You know, we can have a fantasy that is also familiar to us. Thus, you know, acquainting us more with the actual, you know, messages and the actual nature of reality better, even though it is this, you know, flight of fancy. Uh, so that's that's what I like about urban fantasy. More relatable, in two words. There, there is a part of me which always feels more drawn to these urban settings because I grew up in a city. You know, I have no great reminiscence of the past maybe that's sort of like maybe there's a queer element to there because i find uh you know a lot of queer people while they'll be like history people and they'll enjoy that practice they they will never want to hearken back to the days because you know now has been it's it's better now than it's it's ever been well maybe there was like a sweet spot a couple of years ago before republicans really started going hard on uh, queer culture where it was probably slightly better but uh (laughs) But even in this era we're living in, yeah, there's there's no great, you know, up until very recently, you were embattled for your identity uh, just constantly in a very harsh and violent way. So there's no relating towards the past or desire to be in a medieval setting. Or if you're in a medieval setting in Dungeons and Dragons, you're recharacterizing it so that, you know, it's okay for there to be queer people in it, which... Uh, you know, that's another element of JRPGs I want to talk about. You know, there's always, there's always, they're a little gay. <laughs> you know, maybe that's why I'm drawn to it for some reason. Or, you know, uh, for some reason, a huge experience with a lot of gay people I've, I've met is that they, they have, sure enough, they have a mermaid phase and they have a Kingdom Hearts phase. <laughs> you know, that's the, uh, those are the two things. Mermaid phase, Kingdom Hearts phase <laughs> presents a lot in uh, a lot of LGBT people, I've noticed. Um, but yeah, I don't know. You know, I don't know if Tetsuya Nomura is queer or not. Uh, I, I have I, I have no who Who cares? It doesn't matter. But there's something about those games. I guess something about that, you know, presentation of um, of femi males or sort of uh, the, the rules about the gender expression in like JRPG protagonists especially is always taxed towards a little little androgynous, you know. And uh, I think that's what makes them attractive to a lot of queer people who can more easily map themselves onto these characters. Uh, but you know, that's that's an, that's a rank oversimplification as well. Um, but I don't know. I think that's why you see also a lot of like queer people who are into anime as well because like. Uh, uh, because you'll get like femi men in it <laughs> that's the vast oversimplification you know you should you should absolutely censure me for this but um yeah for some reason there there is always like for some reason i've noticed gay people i've this, this is my this is my deaf gay comedy jam act i've noticed gay people tend to tack towards jrpgs there there is a large gay jrpg following they should call them gay rpgs i say uh anyway uh, <laughs> this is all to say that um this combination of turn-based plus urban fantasy um plus sort of the this sort of uh 
heightened melodrama of JRPGs, which I want to I, I want to address as well, because there are RPGs from Japan which we don't consider JRPGs. Elden Ring is an RPG from Japan, but it's definitely not a JRPG, and its its story is bombastic in in the way that a JRPG story is, but there is sort of like a solemnity and a darkness to it that separates it from this almost sort of soap opera quality that a lot of JRPGs have, which is also that's something attractive about those games if you're into it. There's this sort of kitschy, overstated quality. Everyone is always, like, overstating themselves, whereas, like, in Dark Souls, it's the opposite. Everyone is understating themselves. There's all these hidden motivations that you have to define, whereas, like, in JRPGs, everyone is very off-the-cuff about their emotions constantly. I think, you know, that's where that's might also be sort of the queer elements to it, is everyone is being messy bitches to each other all the time, and, you know, there's all this... <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of messy bitches in JRPG, in JRPGs, which is... Uh, sure, I'll... Yeah, I'll associate that with queerness. Why not? <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm old for I'm old for three on the queer theory takes today, but but bear with me, folks. Bear with me, folks, because uh, there will be actual like honest to god queer elements in one of the games that I'm talking about. Um, explicit queer elements in one of the games that I'm talking about, and I'll be excited to get to that. Um, but yeah, sort of this melodrama as well, this kitschiness, this it's sort of like uh, hands. Uh, I remember. Uh, there was this thing when Kingdom Hearts came out, and MC Chris, who was on Aqua Teen Hunger Force and was sort of like this nerdcore video game MC with a high voice, uh, talked about, he was ranting about Kingdom Hearts 2, and it's like, it's all this hands-on-your-hips anime <laughs> bullshit, which is, I, I love, you know, he didn't like it, but I love that phrase, hands-on-your-hips, where you, that, that sort of uh, stilted, simplistic... Um, you know, style of expression is, uh, that's what I like about it. That's what's fun to me about it, where there's all the, the emotions are heightened as well. Um, even in Pokemon, yeah, there is this sort of simplistic reduced quality, like our world, but smaller in the same way, uh, that you like those, uh, a miniature version of, of, you know, why, Little Canada and Toronto is a huge attraction there, or, like, why people are into trains. There is always, like, this attraction to this idea of a contained universe. You know, you see representations of that in the movie Hereditary or Synecdoche, New York, which both feature characters who are obsessed with miniatures and control and that idea of having this contained you know, smaller universe. and uh, But this smaller universe version of yourself... Um, because, you know, obviously we can't control the universe, but we can create a version of it that is at once familiar to us, but something that we can manipulate and is knowable. And I think there, there is a great pause in that. There is a great, um, sense of satisfaction in having a, a knowable, but still understandable and relatable universe, which is, um, why, you know, the exaggeration or the simplicity of it uh, makes it uh, adds to that feeling adds to that this is like us but smaller um, in some respects so I, I think that's another aspect of it to how the melodrama heightens it so I want to talk about uh, three games now um, uh, three of my favorite games of all time I love these games so much um, and they sort of represent my history 
with JRPGs and how I first got into them. Uh, the first one is going to be very obvious. It's one that pretty much everybody's played. Uh, it was probably the game that got many people hooked on JRPGs. Uh, and it's Final Fantasy VII, of course, which I played at a like at nine years old, a couple years after it came out. Uh, I didn't get it at first. The story seemed daunting. It seemed like it was too adult of a game for me at the time. I, when it first came out, I was seven years old. And, uh, and uh, the thing about it, the thing about Final Fantasy VII is uh, it's, it is really adult, actually. It does have all of these things in it which, when you introduce them to a kid, are, are very... Uh, heady, and you know, if you understand even a little bit of it, you you think you understand a lot because, uh, especially in its relationship to the environment, which is you know that's primarily what Final Fantasy VII is about. What I really like about it too is a video game with like, and the other video games I'm going to mention have a real ethos to them, or at least there is some sort of metaphysical idea they're exploring that is actually the philosophical text is very important in the video game which is what i like about them too where even if the stories are heightened there is actually like a lot of thought uh put into this melodrama there's a lot of understanding of like conflicting values and uh our relationship to the world and especially in like final fantasy 7 it's like what what do we owe the world around us you know what what do we owe to preserve the world around us i are we justified in doing eco-terrorism in order to fight the corporations i think ultimately the game lands on yes which is very very funny i actually uh played some of the remake recently and it tries to recharacterize it i mean that's what the game is all about the game the remake is all about you can never go back and you're always going to try and change the story in infinitesimal ways but um, the initial Final Fantasy VII uh, comes hot on the heels of all of this sort of popular pro-environment media, or like the polluting CEO was a very classic bad guy in the 90s. Uh, you have like Mr. Burns as the preternatural polluting CEO, or you have, you know, Captain Planet is all about fighting for the environment, or Fern Gully. There was, there was this sort of sweet spot where this very pro-environment conscious media was allowed in the 90s because it was just getting to a point where we were starting to understand our relationship with the world and how uh, our years of industry had actually affected the world around us. We, we had understood it for a while, but now there was sort of a mass boom in the popular consciousness of that notion especially uh, global warming did that term did come in in the 90s and people started worrying about it and people knew about greenhouse gases in the 90s um and just you know you you know pollution is bad you can see the smog being belched into the air you can see the fishes dying in the river you know you, you know you just know inherently oh, i probably shouldn't be doing this it's probably like it's bad but you do it anyway because you know you got to keep the gdp going um so yeah you just had this spate of like really prominent environmentally conscious uh media that was especially directed at children because i think it's an easier pitch to children it, it's hard to pitch to children like 
hey, kids, we're, we're the oil industry, and here's why we get to, you know, extract the world and, you know, uh, deplete the region and uh, move the animals off. You know, kids like the little animals, and they don't like them when they die. So, like, being environmentally conscious is, is a much easier pitch to children, <laughs> weirdly enough, in, in my view, or at least it was to me. Because it's like the pitch is like, do you, do you want the animals to die, Jimmy? No, I don't want the... No! <laughs> so I also understand why that had a, a, a vogue in children's media as well. But as we went on and uh, global warming, uh, climate change became more of an actual issue we had to deal with. And more one that sort of where, where we understood how we were closer to doom because of it... Um, you don't see a ton of pro-environment children's media anymore because I think talking about the environment just bums people out. <laughs> They're just like, oh, there's nothing we can do. There's no inaction. There's no, ain't no fern gully coming to help you. Ain't no avalanche coming to blow up the Mako reactors. You know, you are, <laughs> you are alone in this. You know, and especially because what little children's media or any media at all that's devoted to environmental stuff is either, you know, art house stuff like first reformed um or there was this one i remember there was like environment bigfoot uh and it was this sort of middle of the road you know bigfoot cartoon about a pro environment bigfoot because he's bigfoot you you expect him to be pro oil bigfoot but yeah there was a massive conservative lobbying campaign against the fucking bigfoot cartoon and that's what you're also up against now is like uh, now uh, conservatives are more acutely aware of how environmental uh, pro-environment media can hurt their bottom line because it's an actual going concern that a lot of people are worried about. So they have more of an interest in suppressing that type of uh, expression. So uh, Final Fantasy VII is, is, articulates its environmental message beautifully. You know, it articulates our responsibility and what we owe to the planet in an incredible, astonishing, like, tearful way. It, it, it's like, beyond Sephiroth, I think the main thesis of the game comes... And uh, spoilers for Final Fantasy... Spoilers for all these video games. If you haven't played any of these video games, as I mentioned them, uh, you know, dip out now. But, um, so, uh, yeah, right in the game, you're in space... And Sid, Sid Highwind, a character who has always wanted to go into space but has been uh, thwarted by uh, faulty rocket ships. And, you know, Shinra, the big corporation, used to pay for the space program, but now they've let it fall into disrepair as uh, the company has become solely focused on resource extraction, which is how like life are, are, you know, the, the, our goals of science are thwarted by the inevitable corporatization of everything we love. So uh, at one point in the game, you go to space and Sid finally sees the planet from uh, outside and uh, he gives us just like beautiful, like the best line ever written in a fucking video game in my, in my opinion, where he talks about, and I'm paraphrasing here, I, I'm not going to get it completely right, but it's more or less... He always thought the planet was so large, but when he sees it from afar, it's like a kid. It's like a quivering little kid that you gotta protect. And that is just like, that is such the amazing articulation of what we owe to the planet. It's not that, you know, we're saving ourselves. It's that we have something that's beautiful that we are just totally letting go to waste. 
And, you know, I, you can hear me getting a little, like, teary-eyed as I'm talking about it. That's how powerful this game is. That's how, like, great it is at articulating um, if you really get into the characters and if you really get into the setting and if you really understand what's at stake, um, it really uh, can get you motivated, actually, about wanting to do something. Maybe maybe, maybe not eco-terrorism like Avalanche, but who knows if, the, if that's your truth. You know, but, um, yeah, I really love that fucking line, and I really love this fucking game. It has, I, you know, I talked about turn-based battle systems before, uh, but, uh, even from the beginning, there's always been this quest to, oh, we know turn-based systems are sort of boring, so we gotta spice it up a little. So this has the active time battle element. You're still given a lot of downtime in the game, so it's not that much of a going concern. You can switch it up to turbo and go like really crazy if you want and, you know, make it a, a Twitch game uh, in that respect. But uh, it, I, I like the system. The system is fine. It still gives you that logistical fun. Um, but beyond that, I think um, what I really like about Final Fantasy VII is uh, it's Tetsuya. I believe, yeah, it's Tetsuya Nomura's first run at character designer. Before that, the characters had been designed by the wonderful Yoshitaka Amano. But um, if if you want to go uh, Amano versus Nomura, it's a classic battle. Which one do you like better? I think more people will acknowledge that Amano is sort of like there. There is there is sort of a classier quality to his artwork. Um, it is there. There is a greater refinement to it. Uh, but and Nomura has much more of a pop sensibility, and it, almost like sort of a Lennon and McCartney. Do you like the serious guy or do you like the poppy guy? And you know, I want to say I'm a Lennon fan, but really I'm a McCartney fan. I love Nomura's stuff. I love his wacky ass costume designs. I love that they only get crazier as time goes on. You know, and you know, look at look at Titus, Titus, Titus from Final Fantasy X. He has like a third of pants. You know. <laughs> Uh, 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 what's up with that? Why is one leg longer than the other? Who cares? It's Nomura. He's designing him. But um, I I say those wacky designs are cool, but I really like the FF7 designs because they are so reined in. Uh, He's he's doing it for the first time, so he's not as comfortable, you know, going full-on Nomura, uh, you know, just accessories everywhere so the character designs are a lot more simplified also i'm sure uh, some of the reasons why they're simplified is because of the constraints of the technology because they had to read in those blocky polygonal 3d models um you couldn't have so much shit on them you couldn't laden them with all the those accessories and shit so you had to make the character designs more sleep sleek and stripped down but I, I think it's for the better, um, honestly. I, I, I think these are the uh, the FF7 designs are still the best ones Nomura has made in his entire career because uh, they just aren't too busy, but still busy enough in that in that entertaining Nomura way. But all of the characters have these great color palettes and silhouettes that you can instantly recall. You know, uh, Cloud is, is yellow and purple. Uh, you know, Barrett is uh, green and brown. Uh, and, and, you know, in other Final Fantasy games, and it's weird because Final Fantasy VIII, uh, the character designs, I think, take a little bit of a hit with the greater, you can see how, like, the greater amount of detail already got into Nomura's head where he's thinking, oh, I can add way more shit to these costumes now. And so, but the design actually takes sort of a step back as a result of it because the characters end up, 
Oh, they're sort of all the same height. They have distinguishing features like cowboy hats and, you know, uh, sort of color palettes. But the color palette is slightly more washed out. Characters are in uniforms, you know. There's less of a difference in character design between, like, uh, uh, Cypher and and uh, uh, Leon and Squall than there is between uh, uh, a Cloud and Barrett. You know, the first two characters you're introduced to in... Final Fantasy VII or Cloud and Barrett, who like you can instantly, you know, uh, you know, vastly these vastly different characters, these vastly different designs. Um, inst- you you can instantly tell what they're all about within their first two lines of dialogue. But uh, Cloud is sort of an annoying. Uh, he he's sort of like this arrogant prick, and uh, Barrett is uh, Barrett is this overzealous. Uh, <laughs> a very strongly opinionated person and uh it it makes for a great dynamic right from beginning because there's instant conflict i mean there's conflict with uh squall and cypher but they suffer from that sort of um they're sort of blanks you know they're sort of they're both sort of stoic like cypher's evil but he's evil stoic you know that's the problem with a lot of the ff8 characters is that they just all have the stoicism problem where uh, the characters aren't as distinct. You know, people complain about uh, Titus's, you know, like joyful uh, nature or, or sort of the exaggeration of that character. But I think it goes a long way, actually, in, in making him a more compelling protagonist than Squall. I'm sorry if I piss off FF8 fans. I know there's lots of hardcore FF8 fans, but, um, you know, it's... I, I this These are my opinions. You know, these are my opinions. So you have these this great character design... He's instantly memorable. Every character is good. You know, even the annoying ones are good. You know, even Yuffie. I love Yuffie. You know, I, I love I love her storyline. I love how she's trying to uh, restore honor to her version of Japan, which was routed out by, uh, you know, corporate interests. That's a very interesting take on it. That's something that will appear in another game where it's like, often time yeah actually in all three games that i'm going to talk about there is this sense of um the encroaching industrialization of japan essentially ruining it and (laughs) and you know taking on too much of the western values you know results in this cheapening of it i guess wu tai is uh in the west in (laughs) so too much of the eastern midgar values are, are are you know infecting the sanctity of wu tai but uh yeah, that, that comes up in the other games that I'm going to talk about as well. Um, but uh, I suppose I should summarize the plot of FF7, which I haven't done yet. If you haven't played it, uh, I said spoiler warning, but uh, as everyone knows, you are uh, a mercenary. The main character is a mercenary cloud at the beginning of the game. You join an eco-terrorist organization called Avalanche, which is hell-bent on... Uh, fucking up the Shinra Corporation who are extracting Mako Energy, uh, which is the planet's lifeblood. Uh, along the way, you meet a guy called Sephiroth. He's a bad guy. Uh, he was initially employed by Shinra as a mercenary, and Shinra and it, the scientists that employ basically had a hand in his creation. Um, he is partially injected with something called Genova cells, Genova is this sort of calamitous, destructive alien that is also basically a, a resource extractor, like Shinra, Mirror Shinra in that it's only, uh, or like Lavos in other games, but that's usually like a, a pretty re- reoccurring JRPG trope is that 
uh, there is some sort of Galactus or some sort of planet eater, and we need to stop the planet eater. <clears throat> so, uh, but, you know, uh, people do experiments with Genova. Shinra gets its hands on it, and they inject people with it in order to try and give them superpowers. It's They get body horror. They get fucked up body horror shit happening to them. It's no good. Uh, Cloud has a relationship with Sephiroth. Sephiroth eventually uh, overtakes Shinra as the main bad guy, and uh, he wants to bring a meteor down to Earth so that all of the energy will travel towards a wound in the Earth, and he will absorb it all and become a god in doing so, and then you need to stop him. And that's that's the basic plot of it. Um, and uh, it's sort of great, because I, I, I think, like I said before, you have this, you begin with the first enemy, who is this version of resource extraction. And then you have that that's rooted in the material world. And uh, in the beginning of the game, you're just in Midgar. You're only in this city. There's no overworld you can't explore. Um, so you're, you're stuck. You're almost alienated like you are in a city, like in an apartment, where you're sort of removed from the outside world and you can only see the enemy as, you know, this one sort of knowable material thing but then once you get out of Midgar and the world expands you realize that uh, this sort of desire for power through resource extraction can be extrapolated on a fantastical level to this character Sephiroth who becomes sort of obsessed with revenge and the desire for power to be uh, 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 ascended towards a god because he feels short he feels like Genova was an ancient that got routed out by the uh, evil humans of the planet and then wants uh, sort of a cosmic revenge for that as well. Play the game. It's really good. Unforgettable characters. Um, great fucking soundtrack by Nobuo Uematsu, which in retrospect seems very influenced by Twin Peaks. I didn't notice it before, but someone could do a whole fucking video essay on... The, the weird influence that Twin Peaks had on this huge swath of gaming throughout the 90s, like how Link to the Past's Light World and Dark World was directly influenced by Twin Peaks. And apparently Mark Frost was even consulted on it. That's something that came out recently, which was sort of mind-blowing. Of course, I would if there was sort of some sort of turn-based Twin, pa Twin Peaks JRPG, you know, that would be, be fantastic. Uh, but, you know, that's not going to happen, and, you know, obviously shouldn't happen. Don't settle my nerd hash for even suggesting that. Um, but, yeah, Final Fantasy VII, you know it, you love it, it changed everything. Everybody bought this fucking game. It, uh, it demonstrated just how big games could be. And I guess one last thing I'll say about it is what I really like it is something that you can't reproduce anymore because we go for realism now. We, we go for, uh the 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 most potential immersion possible but um what i really also like about this game is the blocky little polygonal designs and the pre-rendered backgrounds and the fact that you can't go everywhere at all times and the world is somewhat limited it's uh i i think that's great because along with that sort of fantasy or like D, &D aspect that comes with a lot of rpgs it allows you to uh, fill in your own details about this world and, you know, imagine other stuff, which is like, I, I, I sort of like that about the video game. It, it gives you this room to imagine what the the greater world looks like or what it would look like in a, in a better rendered uh, background. There was like, um, 
I remember like when they're there were like back in 1998 when they just all you had for your references of Pokemon were the Ken Sugimori drawings and the uh, and the sprites themselves. So you would have to imagine what like a Pokemon would look like in real life. But as 3D technology got better, you eventually got that. And for some reason, it was underwhelming. It was always less good than what it was in my imagination. And, you know, same with all the iterations on Final Fantasy VII, you know, as the characters became more realistic looking, I don't know, I, I became less invested in it, it became less cartoony, This the it became less timeless, because, you know, in the same way of the Wind Waker and Twilight Princess, those earlier cartoonier looks, for some reason, I don't know, I feel they somehow age better, those blocky 3D polygonal models, which we said, you know, age so badly... They, they read a lot better. They're sort of more entertaining to look at than certainly the Final Fantasy VIII models. I'm ragging a lot on Final Fantasy VIII. It's a great game as well, but, you know, it has uh, flaws that have often been pointed out compared to Final Fantasy VII, all of which I'm reiterating here. But yeah, Final Fantasy VII, great game. Play it. Strong ethos, great characters, great soundtrack, uh, great battle system, love the limit breaks, engaging animations, fun summons... Endless, endless fun. Uh, you gotta watch the fucking Knights of the Round cinematic play every time, or you're a jerk. Uh, and uh, otherwise, you know, uh, great super bosses. I love the super bosses in it. Really tests your metal. Uh, and yeah, not enough good words to say about Final Fantasy VII. Uh, everything everyone says about it is true. It's good. Play it if you haven't yet. Uh, the second game that I want to talk about... Uh, came out uh, mid into the PS2 cycle. It had two games before it called Kudelka and Shadow Hearts 1, but the second really hit its stride, and that was Shadow Hearts Covenant, uh, the second the second Shadow Hearts game in that wonderful series. And uh, this game, it is about the urban fantasy seven fantasy setting, but taken to the the max. It's not even in a fictional world like Final Fantasy seven. It's in the real world. It's in World War fucking one, <laughs> and you have magic. What if magic and and existed in World War one? But it also. Um, introduces an element that I also really like about uh, these types of games where it's uh, heavily referential to world mythology and just any type of monster from world mythology that it can uh, uh, think of it will include in their game and that, that was great for me because as a kid I always loved just reading about uh, various myths. I love reading about you know Agni and Hanuman and Indian mythology, loved reading about goddamn Utgard Loki and uh, Norse mythology, loved reading about goddamn, you know, Ogun and Olakun and, you know, uh, in uh, uh, West African stuff. You know, it's like I, I had always been gravitated toward that. So, you know, you, here's this game, which for its bestiary, and which has, you know, obviously been a trope of RPGs since the very beginning, uh, draws a lot on not just sort of Western monsters or sort of more traditional fantasy monsters, but also the, the, like these really sort of uh, more obscure myths like the Lampton Worm or something like that. And that, and then as a kid, you'll find out for the, what the fuck is the Lampton Worm? And then you'll learn about the goddamn Lampton Worm. And that, that was great for me. That's, that's a huge aspect of these games as well, just going through the bestiary and finding out what they're drawing on from history. Um, Shadow Hearts Covenant... 
um, is a game that uh, is great because it also has a real sense of humor. It has a real shithead sense of humor. It's sort of a parody RPG in a way, but it also takes itself very seriously. And of course, the last episode I did was about Ween. So obviously I'm into parodies that also take themselves seriously and, and have something to say and have like a real philosophical bent. I like that your enemy is the person that ruins the world is a, is a priest from the Catholic church is like, ah, oh, I like life <laughs> who, who is caught up in this massive conspiracy of this organization called Sapientis Gladio, which I don't know if is a reference to Gladio, the CIA stay behind operations after world war one, but this is some sort of conspiracy, which involves Rasputin is in there and Rasputin is collaborating with the, the Catholic church. <laughs> in order to, you know, seize power. Um, and, you know, I the game isn't explicitly anti-communist, but one of the big features of the game, obviously spoilers, go and play the game if you haven't, is that at one point um, uh, there is a place in the game called Appoint a Tower, which is uh, near the Vatican. And one of the antagonists of the game, Nikolai, uh, releases this door which harbors all of the malice behind it and you know this malice comes out and infects the world and uh accelerates the brutality of world war one that much better i i always like that it's like how do we reckon with this massive bloodletting you know the worst war that anyone had ever seen by by any imagination you know fucking mustard gas you know forget about goddamn sure you could get your jaw blown off by a cannon but that's still like a knowable physical injury here's this thing which just infects you and burns you from the inside it's there's so much more brutality to it the weaponry is so much more effective and there's just so much more death and um so yeah i like that the game's explanation for this is no, some some guy just you know he fucked up and you know that's the reason why we all started killing each other much more intensely in the 20th century is because of uh this this reason specifically um <clears throat> the plot of the game is uh you are yuri you're a harmonizer harmonixer it's spelled harmonixer but i think it's pronounced harmonizer you have the ability to fuse with demons uh at first you start off as a soldier in the german army you are a uh you are the commander of a battalion in the german army trying to take a small town in france called domremy uh strategically and you know it's not problematic because it's world war one it's they're not nazis yet you know so it's no no there were no good guys and bad guys in world war one it was just people killing each other because of monarchy you know there's no uh, <laughs> there's no easy way we won though so yay Yay! We demobilized the Ruhr Valley. Wonderful. And, uh... <laughs> uh so, uh, you, you play the commander of this unit of uh, German soldiers called Karen. I, I don't think there were many women commanders of battalions. I don't, I don't think there were any, probably. But that's sort of what I like about this game as well. It's like lots of anachronisms. Well, it doesn't... While it does use a historical setting, you know, people talk in a modern way. This would annoy some people. I think it's funny. It sort of goes to the humorous, parodic aspect of the game. Um, and sort of, the yeah, the character designs are very modern, too. They don't necessarily look like they're characters from, from the uh, 1910s or whatever. So uh, <laughs> um, 
that's that's fine. I like that aspect of that. Um, and so you go to this town. You are thwarted by a demon uh, named Yuri. Eventually, you collaborate with Nikolai, and you stick Yuri with this thing called the Holy Mistletoe, which is slowly killing him. Uh, so you set out to find this person and get a cure for the Holy Mistletoe initially, which leads you down the rabbit hole through Nikolai of this whole conspiracy involving Sapientus Gladio and Rasputin. You eventually stop Rasputin. You recruit Anastasia into your party. So the game the game could be interpreted as anti-communist as well because uh, I think the game also attributes the malice released into this world is also responsible for the October Revolution. It does paint the Romanovs very, very nicely with a very nice brush. You know, I'm not, the game isn't historically perfect. You know, what do, what do you want? It's also like very goofy. Uh, one of the major side quests in the video game is you need to find gay porn. This is actually, you need to find gay pornography in order to trade it to these gay French guys who will then make dresses for your living doll. Because one of the characters is a puppeteer, and he has a living doll that gets different elemental casts based on which dresses it wears. Uh, also, one of your character is characters is explicitly queer in the game, Joachim Valentine, this muscle-bound wrestling French vampire whose who's alter ego is Grand Papillon, Big Butterfly. His, his mentor is historical wrestler The Great Gamma, and they get into homoerotic wrestling tournaments all throughout the game. Uh, there you need to ascend a wrestling platform filled filled with different Kareet men in order to in order it's great i love this game i love Joachim so much in order to level up his character you just find shit on the road you'll find like a mailbox or something like that and then he'll pick it up and he'll use that as a weapon and all of the scenes involving him are really bizarre and have this great twangy music to it to uh, underscore the bizarreness of it um, and, uh, yeah, so you just have these, uh, very memorable characters like that in the game. Um, he's probably my favorite character, Joachim. I, I love him. How can you not, like, a gay wrestling French vampire? Uh, you, you can't, you can't be that. You can't be that, that type of characterization. Oh, and he has dreads, too? Yeah, sure, why not? He has dreads. He's white and he has dreads. Sure. Of course. Um, <laughs> um, Actually, this was the game that made me find out about the Solomon's Key, which if, you know, you're a fan of just looking at demonology texts or finding out, like, little little uh, lists of demons, then finding out about the Ars Gusha, finding out about the Lesser Key of Solomon is, like, a huge thing. There's this big collection and mission in the game, which you need to collect all the demon crests. You need to get Shax and Fornius and and murmur and all those guys and needed to put them in a very specific order in a little puzzle and once again it's puzzles um and once again th this game uh breaks sort of the the perceived monotony of turn-based systems uh uh it turns it on its head because it has this thing called the judgment ring where every time you attack you need to do an input on this little uh wheel where a needle uh, scrolls around the wheel and there are certain areas you need to hit in order for your attack to actually hit uh, which is great because it involves that sort of I, I know I said I poo-pooed the twitch element of games before but it's fun you know it's obviously that's why you play video games a lot of the time as well and because that's incorporated into this video games I can actually I feel like I can, I can actually recommend Shadow Hearts Covenant to people that don't like turn-based RPGs because it has that constant 
arcadey element of needing to hit the little strike zones on the judgment ring. So I think it would even appeal to people that don't necessarily like turn-based RPGs. But yeah, eventually you defeat Rasputin, but then another another <laughs> another problem arises in the east and it's Kato. And he is once again, like every RPG, trying to recreate himself as a god because he has lost something. In his case, uh, his his lover died. And uh, he is trying to become a god. He's trying to become Suzunoo, the, the classic god of storms in Japanese mythology, in order to uh, remake the world in his own image. You fight on the field of uh, Takemagahara. I'm pronouncing it incorrect. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, Kato, yeah, Kato. Did I say Mako? <laughs> no, it's Kato. Um, but so, yeah, Kato, you, you also defeat him in the end, and it's a whole thing, and then there's time travel, and there's a twisty, and then it's the plot. It's like, maybe it's like an incest thing going on throughout the whole... What? What's going on? That's weird. Um, and uh, I, I love the ending of it, too. Also, another, like, right in the middle of it, it's... Uh, if, you know, the if Final Fantasy VII is about... Um, dealing with the environment is if, if I, uh, Shadow Hearts Covenant is about how do you deal with the death of a loved one, especially like the death of a spouse, the you, the death of uh, your other half, uh, your your truly chosen romantic partner. You know how do you deal with that, and uh, that gets reflected in the characters of Yuri and Kato. Yuri, who. <laughs> you know, it's sort of rewarded in the end by uh, he goes back in time and he's able to relive uh, and get the good ending with his lover, Alice. But, uh, you know, Kato, ultimately, who seeks destruction, uh, uh, you know, he is he needs to be thwarted because he, he is going about this temporal uh, nonsense in, in a much more destructive way than Yuri. So I guess that's like. You will be rewarded if you if you do not necessarily try to destroy the universe in order to remake the image of your lover. Then you will be rewarded if you don't try and if you defeat that guy, then you'll get to experience the love of your life again. Um, which is, uh, you know, whatever. But I I think the game really explores that. The big uh, the big denouement of the game is this middle section where he's trying to get this book called the Emmy Gray Manuscript, which revives dead people. And he's trying to revive his dead lover. And there's this scene where he's he's going to his friend Roger Bacon, this Welsh wizard, uh, and they're trying to revive Alice. And her body is sort of composing in this liquid goo chamber that they have going on. And she appears just a second, and it's her, and it's her sort of torso, and her arms and legs aren't forming. And you know the center will not hold, and she is in existence long enough to just say, "I love you, Yuri," and then. Yuri says, I love you too. And he cries, it's great. Like the animation is like dated, you know, it's from 2004 and that might take you out of it, but it's really well-written. It's genuinely emotional and lovely. And it, you know, brings you to a real place in the game and you're actually really invested in this character. It also helps that Yuri is sort of a vastly more relatable JRPG protagonist than like cloud even cloud who also suffers from that stoicism problem yuri is like yuri has that i I'm, I'm sort of an arrogant asshole like cloud but he's cracking jokes you know he's lazy he sort of has these more uh, evident human characteristics that make the emotional things that happen to him hit much better which is uh why i really like this game too it's through the humor expressed in these characters that they actually become more human 
and more relatable than um, potentially other JRPGs, which rely a lot on the seriousness and drama of the situation to drive the relatability. I think usually when I really care about JRPG characters, it is in JRPGs that tend to tack toward more towards humor. Like Final Fantasy IX, you know, the reason why vv's story is so horrible it's because the character's so fucking cute and so funny and you know once you find out vv's fate and you know what's happening to him it's, it's, it's like oh no this cute thing is dying he's <laughs> dying <laughs> oh no uh yeah so once again yeah i i always tack towards uh stuff that is kitschier maybe less realistic because i feel in that with that lack of realism um, it tends to bring out the realism even more paradoxically. Um, and uh, I could say a lot more about Shadow Hearts Covenant. Uh, it's it's probably the most obscure game that I'm going to list today. Not a lot of people know about it. It made somewhat of a splash, and it, enough to get a sequel, with the sequel which is also very good, but um, less emotionally substantial, less cohesive than Covenant. Um I, I, uh, are there any other things that I want to say about this game? No, just find a way to play it. It's hard to find. It didn't get a lot of re-releases. You basically have to buy a PS2 in order to get it. Uh, there have been talks about uh, the studio. It's an Atlas game. Uh, I forget the exact studio that made it. Sacknoth, I think it's called. Um, and there are talks about uh, doing a spiritual sequel to it, but nothing is really... Uh, materialized yet i really want to see it because i love this game i love its sense of humor i love its setting i love its uh demon bestiary uh i i love the combat system i love the music you know and all three games you know i, I all three the music in all of these games is so fucking good yeah i ragged on listening to video game soundtracks in one comic earlier but that's because i do listen to video game soundtracks so it's a little self-crit but yeah if you listen to the shadow hearts covenant soundtrack fantastic some of the best town themes ever written in video game the japanese town theme and the uh and the french town theme mwah, mwah, beautiful i love it so much they're so relaxing instantly put me in a good mood uh and uh yeah try pick it up it's worth the it is genuinely worth the 70 dollars uh you you'd have to pay on ebay to get it and whatever a ps2 costs now but, uh, yeah, can't recommend Shadow Hearts Covenant enough. I think it's one of the best games of all time, one of my favorite games. I would probably even say it's my favorite game of all time, the one that got its hooks into me the most. So um, the one that I think about a lot and would probably influence my idea of what horror should be. So, yeah, pick it up. Love Shadow Hearts Covenant. The last game that I'm going to talk about is uh, the most recent one. It came out a couple years ago, last year, a couple years ago, last year. Uh, it's Shin Megami Tensei Five. Uh, I actually hadn't played any other Shin Megami Tensei games uh, before that, but this was on the Switch. It looked pretty interesting. Uh, it had the whole demon collection aspect, as I mentioned before. I like demon bestiary things, so it, uh, that's what really attracted me to it. Uh, I had tried to play Persona before, uh, specifically Persona Five, because everyone liked that game. Everyone liked the soundtrack. Everyone liked the style. Uh, 
it was that sort of the social element of persona the persona games where you only have like a limited amount of time and you have the choices to develop relationships with certain people and you're going to have to discard other people that actually stressed me out a lot <laughs> to the point where it's like all right i don't want to have to do multiple playthroughs of this or you know i don't want to have to consult a guide because what if i you know do the thing and now i can't talk to that person anymore and i've cut off that that chain and uh, that actually yeah it, it created too much stress for me to really enjoy the the other aspects of the game and persona 5 is a great game um uh f from what little i've played of it uh i love you know you're going into people's mind palaces and destroying their mind distortion you're 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 curing mental illness by going into the heads of people and destroying their little demons i guess you're not curing a mental illness but rather you're sort of punishing them but from the inside either way uh the persona games are good um shin megami tensei 3 it, nocturne is where a lot of people say the series really picks up or develops the elements that uh it has become known for today it initially started as digital devil saga and then spun off from there um and uh but three is where that sort of pokemon like collection element comes in uh, where uh, you are you are talking to demons and bargaining with them, and then the demons become part of your party. And that's great, because I love Pokemon, but this is like if, if Pokemon were a little edgy and hardcore, what if instead of a Pikachu, you had a goddamn devil? <laughs> you know, you had a... Or, you know, uh, you had a goddamn Mananangal, or something like that. That's another thing that I, I love about this game, is, you know, however much however much obscure mythology... Uh, obscure world mythology uh, Shadow Hearts Covenant drew upon uh, Shin Megami Tensei draws from every everywhere every culture is represented and I, I love that the creatures are ranked so it's like yeah Shiva's probably more powerful than Thor yeah Shiva could definitely take on Thor for sure Vishnu yeah more than a match for Thor I don't know about Odin though Odin might give him a run for I like that they're they're ranked in levels, so they had to have logistical discussions about which demons from world mythology could beat up other demons, which I think is just funny. Yeah, Gabriel is not more powerful than Metatron. Metatron could beat up Gabriel, <laughs> which is, you know, tickles this absolute... Uh, I would love having these. Who doesn't love having the who could beat up who conversations? But instead of doing it with superheroes, you're doing it with characters from world mythology. Uh, which I think is so fun. That's that's totally up my alley. It just totally rings a bell in my head. Um, I haven't played Nocturne. I wanna I wanna play Nocturne, Shin Megami Tensei three and and Shin Megami Tensei four. They look both great. But one thing that seems different about those games, um, and which seems to characterize the level design of them, especially, is that they're very linear. It's running through a lot of hallways, and you're in a lot of buildings. Because this is uh, th this game also builds on an urban fantasy setting, but you're in a post-apocalyptic urban fantasy, and so you're you're still within a city, but it's this uh, bombed-out city that has returned to nature. You're in the netherworld, which mimics Tokyo, but is uh, not actually Tokyo. Well, it is actually Tokyo. The Tokyo that you're in is an illusion of Tokyo. <laughs> the the game's plot is insane. Um, Shin Megami Tensei Five. Um, People lament the plot of Shin Megami Tensei Five. They don't think it's good. I think it's really fucking good, actually. I think I think Shin Megami Tensei Five is is has a really entertaining. Well, it's very anime y, and the character speech is very stilted and has that quality, which you know, if you're not into 
you're not you're never going to be into but i am into that because i sort of like how everyone talks and like i don't every, everyone is sort of archetypical they're, they they represent an archetype and so they're, they are talking in these sort of theatrical speechy uh platitudes that represent that archetype and i sort of like that declarative way of dialogue writing i think it's uh very direct um which is useful in this game because the the plot is is whacked out uh <laughs> um obviously spoilers ahead um but yeah the main thrust of this game is that the devil has killed god and it's not just any god it is the christian god the the devil has actually succeeded in killing the christian god who was basically the main the major god he was keeping down polytheism because the world has accepted monotheism he might not be the christian god but the god in this game is at least a stand-in for monotheistic religions um and uh lucifer has has killed him so now there's an interregnum uh lucifer obviously has a, a claim to the throne the throne being uh, the thing which will remake the world, just as in Final Fantasy VII, there's a seat of power that will remake the world. In Shadow Hearts Covenant, there's a seat of power that will remake the world, just as in this game, there is a seat of power that will remake the world. And uh, you got to get to it. Lucifer's in control of it now, but he's, you know, now everyone thinks that they can get to it. Uh, there's an interregnum. There's a big scramble for power uh, because the the guy that was in charge died. And who doesn't like a good interregnum plot? We like The Sopranos. We liked Game of Thrones up till it sucked. So, yeah, good interregnum plot. And there's all these factions that are trying to get to the throne. Um, three specifically. Uh, and th that sort of comprises the main plot of the game, is you meeting all of these factions, eventually getting to the throne, and deciding which of these factions to side with. Uh, one is the faction of the monotheistic gods of sort of authoritarian absolutism, uh, which are represented by the angel Abdiel and your classmate uh, Dazai, Dazai, Ichiro Dazai. And, uh, and uh, then there's uh, Shintoism. There's sort of many gods or polytheistic religions. Uh, but it, it basically takes the form of Shinto. Uh, it's The options you're given are Christianity versus Shinto versus atheism. And those are the three endings you can choose, basically, is, is Christianity, uh, uh, Shintoism, and atheism. And, uh, yeah, the other faction embodied by your classmate Atsusa and the Prime Minister of Japan, who later turns out to be Sukiyomi... <laughs> I am the Prime Minister of Japan, but I am also Tsukiyomi, the god of the moon. <laughs> it's, I love this game. It's so great. <laughs> and, and the way that information is revealed to you is so matter-of-fact. and so <laughs> it's just It just happens in a cutscene where they're standing around and talking in very calm voices. It's like, yes, I am the Prime Minister of Japan, but I am also Tsukiyomi, god of the moon. He doesn't actually say it like that. He just reveals it very dispassionately and calmly. And so that's another faction. Uh, and uh, the last faction is uh, Yakumo and Nua. It's a, a, there's a human uh, sort of police officer and a, a demon snake lady. And they want to destroy the throne. And uh, you are sort of given the one option where you, you destroy the throne where uh, 
humans are you know going to be in conflict with demons but will eventually prevail but if you get the secret ending you can destroy the throne and create the world for your friends and sort of restore the world back to a place of reality and uh those are the end and i really like that the game you know even though it's stilted and uh everyone talks inhumanly and the characters are not really relatable even your your main character is you know he's just a complete blank um it is um i I think it really propounds on these ideas well and it really like makes you want to it, it really does feel like a significant choice that you're being led into when, once you finally do choose which ending you want. And uh, I I always led towards Chintoism. To me, they, they made the best argument. You know, I, I, you know, fuck a world for humans. I want a world with many gods and conflicts. You just showed me a game. Show me how fun it is living in this fucking demon world. You know, I like, you know, why wouldn't I go for the Shinto ending? You know, I, I love that. I, I love, I like the idea of actual polytheism happening. So, you know, I, of course, that's the one I go for. You know, fuck the human ending. Fuck a world for humans. Uh, I'm the Nahobino. I'm a demon human. I, I, I have a sent beyond that. That's the other thing is you are a not Nahobino. You are a combination between a a uh, human and a demon. And as such, you are sort of a super god. You are beyond the reckoning of other demons and gods as well because you, you represent this divine middle space. Which is, uh, I don't, I don't, the Nahubino is also very androgynously portrayed as a lot of other people. So I think that sort of, that sort of character, that sort of Rebus type character, Rebus is sort of that, uh, in, in alchemy is that combination of a man and a woman to create this sort of divine, all powerful entity. And that's sort of what I drew upon in, in together when, when I was writing that comic, that idea. But, um, I, I think it sort of plays in this game as well, um, or maybe subtly, perhaps. But I, uh, I, I sort of like that that the in between the thing that is in between is is the thing that is actually has the greater insight and the greater power in this world. Which is, I don't know. To me, that's, a, that's sort of a queer idea, sort of a queer idea in there. Um, and uh yeah i i what i also really like about this game is it's sort of a riff on open world games it's not quite an open world game it's it's like too limited to be an open world game it sort of masquerades as an open world game but um what i really like about it is it acknowledges that in an open world game what are you mostly doing it's you interacting with a map a lot of the time either you have like a map in the bottom screen or you're referring to the map in your in your menu um, so this game sort of turns that on its ear by giving you a map, but the map is only top down. It doesn't show, it's not easily interpretable what the gradations are or like how to get past certain ledges or like if something is on a higher plane because you're only seeing it from top down, you can, and you're on like the bottom of something that is above you. There's no clear, easy way on the map to locate how to get there. So it, at once the map helps you but it also sort of uh works against you as well which i think is actually a really clever idea um knowing that part of the trick is understanding how to like navigate the map and you know uh, figuring out this little geographical puzzle that the game has uh set up for you and you know once again that is the 
big feature of RPGs for me is these little little puzzles, like these little puzzles. And I, I think the way you get treasure is by solving these little geographical puzzles. I think that's that's great. I haven't seen like a lot of a ton of games uh, do that. Usually in FF7 it has something like that, but it's it's rel- much easier to find the treasure because it's uh, on those uh, pre-rendered backgrounds. There's a much more limited way that you can approach stuff or you know, in Shadow Hearts, it will show you the entirety of the space that you're in. So uh, it's very easy to find treasure chests. But in this game, no, part of like finding the little treasure, which is actually very important to finding little balls of treasure because uh, they can in, uh, increase your ability significantly. Uh, that's a huge part of the game. And it's, it's never boring because they always hide them away in these little fiendish geographical puzzles that I really like. And, you know... Um, it also makes sort of fetch quests a lot more interesting when you're there's a big fetch there's a big like collection quest in the game where you're trying to find Meman Maimon Meman Maimon uh but uh yeah and that it becomes a much more enjoyable collection quest because you're constantly trying to figure out what this sort of pseudo unreliable map is telling you uh and you have to sort of figure out what it, what this means within the auspices of this sort of unreliable map. Some people might say that is not good game design. I think it is great game design. I think I think it is deliberate. I think it was done that way on purpose, and I think it plays with your expectations of how you interact with a map in an open world game, and I think uh, it is fantastic for that. I also think um, this game is like a pure turn-based RPG. There is, there is no sort of time gimmick. You are given an infinite amount of time uh, to decide uh, how you're going to react uh, in between turns, but the stakes of this game are a lot higher because um, you get an extra turn if you hit an enemy's weakness, which is, you know, huge. So, uh, and also you lose two turns if you miss. So sometimes if you miss in a game uh, and you aren't prepared, it could, you can just die to like a regular enemy, which I really like. I, I think that's great. Like even in normal mode, there there's a greater, they've solved sort of the problem of boringness of turn-based games by just making every encounter much more challenging or hinging on single turns for your party um, and making the reversal of fortune go very quickly if you miss or something because that really heightens battles and it sort of uh, if you get into a battle it it makes the puzzle aspect of it much more heightened because you could potentially uh, really have consequences if you if you don't succeed um and uh, I think uh, beyond that, I think it just has, once again, a great fucking soundtrack of this ambient, like pseudo-ambient music that plays along, like washed out horns uh, that are heavily reverbed and like uh, strange samples that are constantly being uh, torn off. Like the it's a great, the intro you start out with is na 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 Na, 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 na. And it has this ringing voice in the background with this flangered, heavily reverbed guitar. It's gorgeous. Gorgeous fucking soundtrack. Um, can't recommend this game enough. Um, I want to go back and play the other SMT, the other Shin Megami Tensei's as a result of it. Um, but I think this game just rung all my fucking bells. And I think it's worth playing. For all of those things that I mentioned before, all of the melodrama, the urban fantasy, the turn-based uh, system, which gives you a little time to think 
trying to think about these little puzzles. Um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much where I want to end it. I've already gone on for way too long about this sort of thing, but I just have so much goddamn to say about this turn-based urban fantasy JRPG. I love them so goddamn much, and maybe you love them too. And for that, we salute you. And go play them all right now.